All right, I'm going to ask you to do something, and um, in, in fact, I'm, I'm telling you to do something this morning before I start my message. Everybody here with a smartphone or an iPad, no matter why you have it in the house with you this morning, I want it laid face down on the ground at your feet. If you want the scriptures that I'm going to preach from, you can get them on YouTube, or I'm happy to text them to you. What I want you to do, you can, if you have a physical Bible, you are allowed to use it. <laughs> if you have a smartphone or a tablet, face down on the floor under your feet. <laughs> There's a couple of reasons I'm doing this. First is that you are sitting. Let me pray first and I'll tell you why we're doing this. Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you, Father God, that your word is a hammer that smashes rock. It is a fire that consumes your enemies and it has the capacity, it has the character to come in and pierce our hearts and change us so that we walk out of this place different to the way that we walked in. And that's why, Lord, we like to sit under your word because we want to change. We want to be moved from one level of glory to the next and we are not satisfied where we are because we do not yet walk in all the fullness that you have promised us and Lord today we are going to remove some obstacles in Jesus name. Amen. Hallelujah. So reason one is I want, I want your undivided attention this morning. I want you to sit under the Word of God and I want you to hear something that has a very practical application to your spiritual life. We're going to start with uh, something from the story of Elijah. I'm going to take you into something that's happening around uh, the cor all corners of the globe right now in the natural and in the spiritual. And we're going to come back to the story of Elijah and we're going to see what God wants to impart to us this morning. So uh, for those of you who have your physical Bibles <laughs> and you're allowed to use them this morning, we're going to a passage that I preached from a number of times, 1 Kings 18 verses 17 to 24. If my voice sounds a little bit funny this morning, um, I came down with a cold, probably because I had a flu jab a week ago. <laughs> We won't go there, um, but I don't have COVID, okay? So rest assured. First Kings 18, verse 17. And uh, to give you context, Elijah is coming back to King Ahab of Israel to set up a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And it says, Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you? A troubler of Israel. And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, let me, before I say what he says next, I want you to get the context here. Ahab is the king of Israel. Elijah is a prophet that Ahab has been hunting. And in fact, Ahab and Jezebel have been killing the prophets of the Lord. 
And now Elijah gives the king of Israel a command. He speaks to him in authority and says, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And I read this and I thought to myself, where did that authority come from? Where did that confidence and boldness and authority come from that this man who is being hunted by an entire nation presents himself to the king who's hunting him and says, now we're going to do this, get on with it. Where did that come from? I want to tell you where it came from. 1 Kings 17.1, this is our introduction to Elijah. This is the first mention of him in the entire word of God. When he comes to confront Ahab and tell him there's not going to be any rain except at his command because God is so displeased with his people. 1 Kings 17.1, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Before whom I stand, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And I want to take you into something very interesting about the actual words used here in the Hebrew because the key to Elijah's uh, authority and power and boldness is that he stands before the Lord. And when it says, before whom I stand, the word before is the Hebrew word panaim. I want to take you to a completely separate scripture to see where panaim fits in the word of God. In Exodus 33, 11, when uh, Moses enters into this incredibly close relationship with God, this is what the word of God says about the Lord's relationship with Moses. It says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Face, panaim, to face, panaim. The same word used as Elijah described as before the Lord, before whom I stand. Face to face. This is somebody who knows God's character, who knows God personally and intimately and knows what he has been entrusted with in terms of the authority of heaven. That's why Elijah could confront what he was confronting in Israel in his day. When it says Elijah stood before God, it means his countenance was turned toward God. And more importantly, God's countenance was turned toward Elijah. They knew each other. We serve a God who longs to know us. The fruit of this is authority and favour that supersedes man's authority, even if that man be a king. When you have the authority of heaven, no man can stand before you. If you stand before God, you will not bow before man. So Elijah commands Ahab, and Ahab obeys. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. 
And here we have this confrontation at a critical juncture in Israel's history. And it says, Elijah came to all the people. We've got the whole nation gathered there at Mount Carmel. I've stood on Mount Carmel. I've stood in that spot that place and you can look down into the valley that valley encompasses this huge amount of space you could fit literally millions of people there the bible doesn't tell us exactly how many people were there but there was a multitude there ready to listen to what elijah had to say because the king had commanded that the man that they were going they were supposed to be hunting down to get rid of he was actually going to address the nation ahab doesn't know what Elijah is going to say or what he's going to do. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. But the people answered not a word. Why did nobody speak up? Why was everybody silent? The word falter here, this phrase, how long will you falter between two opinions? The word falter in the Hebrew has a connotation of skipping over. The Hebrew for two opinions means Divided in mind. Have you ever been double-minded? You do understand there's a difference between double-minded and two-faced, right? Two-faced is a lot more malicious. Somebody who's two-faced will say one thing to your face and entirely another to run you down behind your back. But here we're dealing with double-mindedness. Double-mindedness is a faltering that kind of says, I can't make up my mind and I'm not sure what's true, so I'm just going to avoid the question. I'm not going to address it. I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to respond. It's too hard. We're going to remain divided in mind. We're just going to skip over the problem. So they offered no responses. They had offered no response except to the prevailing demonic culture of their nation for generations. This had been building and building and building. This is a people who have been seduced by the prevailing demonic culture around them to the degree that they are willing to embrace all kinds of abomination. Did you know that around this time, somebody decided it was a great idea to rebuild Jericho? Did you know that Joshua spoke a curse over Jericho? That Jericho would only be rebuilt by somebody's children being buried in the foundations when they hung the gates. And yet somebody did it. Jericho was rebuilt. And when they buried their children in the foundations of the gates, they did it in the name of Baal. This is how far the nation had come from what God had called them to. For generations they had been carried away from God by seducing spirits and these things never happen all at once. They happen gradually. But eventually they reach the point that Israel has come to here. And it's a point of no return.
What's different about Israel now under Ahab and Jezebel is that Jezebel and Ahab have set an agenda to completely destroy the worship of God from the land. They want to remove God from the life of the nation. Does this sound familiar to you? So Jezebel's spirits of manipulation and control find a willing accomplice by marriage in Ahab and they are killing the prophets of God and their success is almost complete until Elijah turns up. This is all coming to a head. The seducing spirits have done their job. Israel's very identity is being challenged. What do I mean by their identity being challenged? Do you know that Israel had a, all the people of Israel had a specific identity? It started back in Exodus 33. We're going to verse 14. When you get your smartphones out after church, which I promise you, you will be reluctant to do when you hear all this message, and you look up Exodus 33, 14, you'll see that it says this. He said, this is God speaking to Moses on, about the people. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. You know, God promised his people his presence. For then how will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate so we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. You will be separate. Who can I pull out for an example here? <laughs> Come on, Ian. Come on, Irene. Now, Ian, I'm not speaking a word over you, but for the purposes of illustration, you're a Moabite this morning. <laughs> and Irene is an Israelite. And what happens at Mount Sinai is that God's people, this one over here, have entered into a covenant with God. Well, actually, let's make him an Amalekite. Let's make him an Amalekite. This one's an... <laughs> this one's an this one's an Israelite. They had this encounter with God at Mount Sinai. They come into a covenant relationship with them. And in effect, God says, you might have been hanging out with this guy before. You might have worshipped the gods that he worshipped before. But now you are going to be separate. Every other person on the face of the earth is going to see that you no longer belong here. They are going to look at you and they are going to identify you as a separate person, that there is something unique about you and your kinfolk to all other nations on the face of the earth. You shall be separated to me and separated to my purposes. Are you willing to do that? Irene says, yes. But there's a sign. <laughs> and of course, in the new covenant, all the Amalekites can get saved. Is that right, Brian? <laughs> Sit down, guys. Separate, set apart, severed. You are severed from those around you who do not believe that Jesus died for their sins. You are separated from them. It doesn't mean you look down on them. Doesn't look like that. Doesn't mean you mock them. Doesn't mean you ridicule them. It means you come alongside them so that they see the truth in you. Yes. 
As it was for them, so it is for us. 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Look at your neighbor and say, you're special. Look at him again and say, I'm specialer. <laughs> There's no such, that's very bad English. I'm just kidding with you. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you guys understand the marvel of God's light in you and what it's done in you? what it's doing in you now, what it's yet to do, what it's purpose to do, what your destiny is. You are light who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. And so God places a call upon us as his people and he says in Hebrews 12, 14 to pursue peace or shalom with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So he asks us to pursue holiness. He, he asks us to pursue that state of being separated from the culture around us. The culture around you is trying to kill you. You think I'm exaggerating, don't you? It's trying to kill you. Pursue here is very deliberate. You are chasing the sanctified or set-apart life with intent. And so you can say, yes, God, the cows come home, but the intent of your heart must be backed by what you actually do so that you actually move closer to what God has for you. But this is not a study of Hebrew and Greek or a contrast or comparison between old and new covenants this morning. I want to show you, show you about something that hits us where we live and it's been doing it for a long time. I don't know who originally uh, gave this quote. At first I thought it was Jeremiah Johnson, then I thought it was Leonard Ravenhill, and then I went looking and I couldn't find it anywhere, so I might as well claim it must No, I won't. <laughs> I can't remember where I heard it, but this is a profound statement. Without holiness, the church has nothing to offer. God's presence means you are holy, positioned before God, but you are also pursuing that separation from the things of the world. When we go back to Exodus 33, Moses says to God, how's anybody going to tell the difference if your presence doesn't go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the nations on the earth. We have half the nations of the earth in our church and yet we are one nation under God because we are a royal priesthood, a priesthood of kings. We won't walk in kingly authority if we keep dragging the garbage from the culture around us into our hearts. Without holiness, the church has nothing to offer. We, like the people Elijah confronted, live in an age of seducing spirits. Have you noticed that? The world is now in the greatest crisis of our lifetime. Watch the news on India. 
I spoke with somebody on Friday night who has family in India. I'm seeing stuff on Facebook, which we'll get to in depth in a minute. I talked to somebody in our church who has family in India, and I was asking him, what do you make of the situation in India? He said, this stuff on social media, it's all garbage. The place is a disaster zone. This thing with COVID is real. But that's only part of the issue that the world is facing. Adversity, the going says, the saying says, introduces you to yourself. We've seen that over the last year, haven't we? We've been confronted by what we believe or don't believe. And I see society unraveling. I actually see a crumbling of Western civilization. It's coming down around our ears, even as we sit here this morning. And if you look at the situation in places like Russia and the Ukraine and China and Indian places like that, you see that the dogs of war are quite possibly going to be released soon. And I want to tell you that the church is unprepared. And the church is unprepared because we have invited seducing spirits into our lives. The enemy is attacking us on a number of fronts, but I want to focus on one area in particular. We see so far that we are called to stand before God like Elijah did. Is that right? That we are a holy people, a chosen priesthood, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, that we stand before God. We, we can stand boldly at the throne of grace. Imagine the boldness Elijah needed who was not under a covenant of grace or Moses to stand face to face with God. And yet we have that invitation all the time. Our countenances turn toward him. The seducing spirits of control and manipulation loosed by Jezebel and other enemies of the church in the spiritual realm against the remnant that is still awake. That's you. You're awake. You're here this morning praising God. These things are subtle and they are constant. And I want to tell you this morning that, that they are using the finest intellects of our generation to often unwittingly, scientifically program distraction as an addiction and to program each of us into isolated bubbles that are constantly being conformed to a demonic agenda. Should I give you that again? <clears throat> These seducing spirits of control and manipulation loosed by Jezebel and other enemies of the ecclesia against the remnant, us, the ecclesia, the remnant that is still awake, are subtle and they are constant. They are using the finest intellects of our generation to themselves are often unwittingly, scientifically programming distraction as an addiction and to program each of us into isolated bubbles that are constantly being conformed to a demonic agenda. Nowhere is this more evident than in the world of big tech and social media. Big tech and social media. Now, you guys know there is so much available to you in the world of information at this time. There are all sorts of documentaries made with this agenda, that agenda, uh, this point of view, that point of view. There are more opinions than you can poke a stick at. But do you remember... The prophetic word that I brought, I can't remember if it was last week. Or, no, it wasn't last week because Luke was preaching. The week before, 
when I talked about a vision the Lord gave me of people that were actually just shadows of who God had called them to be. So that kept circulating in my mind for a while. And then about a week ago, I can't even remember how it happened, but God drew me to look at this specific documentary. I want to ask you if you've, uh, if you've seen a program called The Social Dilemma. If you've seen this program, can you raise your hand? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven people. The rest of you are about to get quite an education. The reason that I gave uh, this particular documentary as much credence and credibility as I did is because this expose of big tech and of social media in particular was uh, a series of interviews with people that built it. These are not outsiders looking in as critics saying, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do that. These are people that built what we are engaging with. So, for instance, let's, let's go around and see what's going on in our church. Who here ever goes to Google? <laughs> Everybody. Who here subscribes to like you've got a Google news feed that you look at on your phone? A few of you. How about Facebook? Who's got Facebook? And I should get a big show of hands because sometimes I walk back from adjusting the sound and I see people on it during worship. One of the reasons I ask you to put your phone's face down is I don't want any distractions. <laughs> so how many people have Facebook? A huge number of us. What about Pinterest? Pinterest, number of you. YouTube? We're on YouTube, right? Instagram? Do we have any influencers in the house? <laughs> There's deliverance for you. <laughs> What about Snapchat, the kids? <laughs> Snapchat? <laughs> Snapchat, any other Snapchat? <clears throat> TikTok? <laughs> okay. So I, wanna, I, wanna give, I just want to give you some facts, and then I want to I draw this to a conclusion in the spiritual realm. Now, um, I knew that I really felt that God wanted me to watch this, this, this particular documentary. Oh, here's a question. How many of you have Netflix? Okay. So, look, I want to I encourage and challenge you. If you don't have Netflix, get it for one month just for this show. In standard definition, it's going to cost you 9 or $10. If you want it in high definition, it'll cost you about $15 for a whole month of Netflix access. 90% of the content on Netflix is garbage. And if you read the backgrounds of those who birthed Netflix, you'll see a demonic agenda there. But somehow this got through. And I encourage, if you don't have Netflix, get it just to watch this show. I want you to understand, I'm not preaching an opinion. I'm not just prophesying from ignorance. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you as a prophet of the Lord, backed by the facts of what's going on in our society at the moment. So the reason that this thing got my attention, as I said before, was because the people that were being interviewed were the people that built big tech. And so in particular, they had an, in, uh, an interview with uh, the guy who was the Facebook 
monetization director. What does that mean? It means that he was tasked with coming up with a model how for Facebook to make money from a free service. And the, the example that they looked to was Google, right? Because Google sold their search result pages um, to advertisers and people could advertise based around search, certain search terms. And this is an area that I ran my own business in, so I had a pretty good grounding, I thought, in the purposes behind these things. So the fundamental question that this man was being asked to address was, how do we make money from a free service? What is our product? Because these services are free, right? Nobody here has ever paid to have access to Facebook, right? You can pay to advertise on it. I know from experience because of my business that I can spend $35 US and over four days reach between 50 and 60,000 people in Mongolia with a message if I want to. I've done it for a client. Nothing surreptitious about it, nothing underhanded, and it wasn't a product that I wouldn't endorse myself. But when you're talking about access to Facebook and all the billions of people that are on it, how are you going to make money from it? Because these services are free, right? No, they're not. You need to understand that you are the product. You are the product. We will sell you... This is their, how they operate. We will sell you to our advertisers, which include interest groups. And to do that, we must gain and keep your attention. We must addict you so that you are constantly using our service and we sell the fact that you are on there and the things that you like to people that we know would be interested in presenting information to you or selling something to you. The more of your attention that we capture, the more money we make. This is capitalism by surveillance. How deep does that surveillance go? We'll talk about that in a minute. But as we capture your, your attention, we are going to change you imperceptibly. Percentage point by percentage point, we are going to change you. We are going to change your behavior. And once we change your behavior, we're going to have access to your entire value system and we are going to influence you. These companies, Google, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, are the richest in the history of humanity. They're richer than any entity that ever existed on the face of the earth before. Let me give you an example, something that's under construction in the United States at the moment. Facebook are building a 982,000 square foot facility. Do you understand how big 982,000 square foot actually is? The total investment of $800 million. The 809 acre campus will be powered by 220 whatever it is, watts of renewable energy, um, 982,000 square foot facility. This is a data center. There's nothing in this acreage except computing power and those who run it. And that is one of nine in the US alone. 
Why do they need all these data centers? The reason is they've got billions of subscribers and billions of people using their services and everything that you do when you engage with that service is being recorded. Do you understand that? Now your entire history of using Facebook is available to them. It's not your data that's being sold, it's you. It's you. What you like, what you click on, how long you view each piece of data presented to you, how long you interact with their apps, all of that information is being fed into entire computer farms, data centers that build models. This is their purpose, that build models that can predict what you will do next. If I can predict your response, I can control you. Is that right? I can manipulate you. If I know what you're going to do next, I can circumvent it. Or I can alter where you end up. An entire generation is being raised within a culture of manipulation and control. The same design techniques used in Las Vegas to keep people pulling that lever or pushing that button on a poker machine are being used by big tech to engage and control you. Subliminal cues are used to keep you engaged. That means the use of colour, shapes, Notification sounds, all these things are all constantly being tested on millions of people to see which ones are the most effective in keeping your head buried in, a, in, in Facebook, in your smartphone, on Google, on any of these services. And all of this is with the intent to keep you engaged so they can sell you to the people that, that want to use that data to influence you in some way. There was an interview with a man who was part of a team of 50 designers and their entire thing was how do we make the Gmail interface and notifications so attractive that more and more people coming back. So they use subliminal cues. What's going to be the most enticing notification sound? You've got mail, you've got mail, you've got mail. What's going to be the colour scheme that most quickly engages people? Subliminal cues, and these subliminal cues have been used in elections to get people to vote without them knowing they were being manipulated to do so. This is effective in an election system where it is not compulsory to vote. So I'm talking about the United States of America. Subliminal cues have been used in elections to get people to vote without them knowing. Now let's say, for instance, you have an interest group that only wants one side of politics to vote. And so you find those people on Facebook. How do you find them? You ask Facebook, what do these people watch? What are they like? Who are they engaging with? What videos are they watching? 
And now we're going to slip in some content that we think is going to entice them. And so when it comes to um, living in a democratic society, what is the implication if one party leverages this but their opposition do not? What if one party has access to this and the other party doesn't? Do you see the implications? If I can predict what you're going to do, I can change what you're going to do. I can control you. These social media companies are actually using your psychology against you. And the algorithms being constantly refined are not being refined by a computer engineer or a psychologist. The computer engineer works alongside a psychologist to then uh, push what they're wanting to achieve into entire data farms of processing power to find the best way to influence you. How sophisticated is this process? The example I saw goes something like this. If you compare the car that you drive today with a car that you drove in the 60s, if you're old enough to do that, the new car is roughly twice as fast and twice as effective in all performance areas. But computing power since the 1960s has increased not by a factor of two, but trillions of times over. Artificial intelligence developed by millions of computer processes, steered by thousands of computer scientists, is manipulating our every response to our world. Not only are they manipulating our response, they want to keep us engaged. And I would challenge you, go to Westfields after we finish here and just walk through the place and give me the, come back and give me the percentage of people who are not walking through like this. Manipulation, control and addiction are demonic. We are not just facing a computer issue here or a psychological problem or uh, a governance issue or a law and order issue. What we are being confronted by are seducing demonic spirits that want to isolate us and change how we behave. And no matter how altruistic the individual scientists in this realm might think they are about their work. And you will hear all sorts of justifications. Oh, well, you know, my auntie just, you know, she only uses Facebook to connect with her old friends from school and go to school reunions. And then you kind of go, okay, well, that's great. How come she's on Facebook three hours a day? No matter how altruistic they might think they are about their work, their goal and the goal of the artificial intelligence they have developed is to seduce you distract you and addict you. Trust me, I know. As somebody who has walked out of addiction, when I saw this and when I saw the warning God gave us a couple of weeks ago, I got on my knees before God and repented. To this end, seduction, distraction, addiction, manipulation and control 
Each of us is being delivered a custom-designed, curated world on our devices. If I got my smartphone out, smartphone out now and went to my Google News app and clicked it, clicked it open, signed in under my email address, and I got any one of you to sign in to your, via your email address into Google News, and we would put the two phones side by side and scroll, <laughs> we would see entirely different content. I can tell you the content that I would see. I would see stuff related to politics. I would see stuff related to the Christian world. I would see stuff to do with MotoGP because I love motorcycle <laughs> racing. I would see stuff to do with uh, rugby league. I would see stuff to do with music. I would see my interests thrown at me constantly, enticing me. Click on this, click on this, click on this. This is so interesting. You can't, you can't miss out. Just this one, you can't miss out. John, Mark Marquez had a big smash before the Jerez uh, MotoGP race tonight. Is he going to start the race or not? I'm like, oh, I better find out. Why? I'm coming to church. I'm not going to... <laughs> Everybody understand what it means that they're presenting a curated world. They choose what to present before you and what they're presenting before you is the result of an algorithm developed by entire farms, data centers of computers saying, we know what he did in the past and we know he's going to respond to this and if he doesn't, he's a plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, E, U, B, W, X, and then you start some zeros after. I can't even say the alphabet this morning. <laughs> this is what's happening. <clears throat> Facebook is in charge of your news feed, not you. You might think, oh, I choose my friends. Oh, no, no, I'm going to unfriend him because he said this about me in church last week. Don't laugh, I watched that happen, mate. <laughs> it's sad, isn't it? <coughs> I'm still on your Facebook camera, praise God. I will delete that comment. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <coughs> Facebook is in charge of your news feed, presenting you with a curated worldview. My Google News is different to yours. So what happens when an interest group has access to all of this and they want to change how you think or feel? Have you thought about those implications? Well, they will pay to access the info that you are being fed and they will change it bit by bit. They'll pop content in there to influence you. Or what can be just as scary, the computer algorithms analysis process is in, it's, it, cannot, it does not have a morality. You understand computers are programmed. They don't have morality. Nor can they determine what is actually true or false. The computer algorithms and analysis process cannot determine what is true and what is false, but it becomes so sophisticated that it presents something that is not true to you because it can predict you will engage with it and be seduced by it. It can't tell the difference between truth and falsehood, but it can predict your response to stimuli and therefore induce you to respond to something, whether it's true or false. 
which means that if you are spending a lot of time on these devices, your moral compass is starting to be moved left or right or up or down. And uh, they gave the statistic that something that is untrue on social media will catch fire across the internet and spread six times faster than even the most true biggest disaster. I would tell you that the rumours about um, India's COVID infection, that the COVID infection is not true and all the rest of it, those stories are spreading right now six times faster than the truth. And the falsehoods are being embraced by people that should know better, people just like you and I. Let me give you a humorous example of this <clears throat> without identifying anybody. There's somebody that used to come to our church and when COVID broke out, they became, uh, they were seduced by all the conspiracy theories that were flying around on the internet. They were believing all this stuff about the viruses being fake. Do you know if you get the vaccination, they're going to put a microchip in that, vac in that vaccine and it's, you're going to be programmed. And not only that, it's the mark of the beast. You're going to go to hell if you get vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. Don't take the vaccine. You're going to go to hell if you take the vaccine. This person started engaging with me on Facebook. I just don't argue about these things, right? But they started making these comments. And uh, so I messaged them and said, look, if you have any solid information to back these things that you're saying, send it to me. So they sent me <coughs> a video clip from Instagram. And the video clip was from somebody who was right near the top of the uh, Centre for Disease Control in America. You know, the one that Dr Fauci works for in the US, right? <clears throat> this person is supposedly right near the top. What was his name? His name was Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Does anybody recognise that name? He is the captain of the reboot of the Starship Enterprise. Captain Jean-Luc Picard at the top of the CDC telling us that if we get the vaccine, we're going to hell. I thought to myself, what does it say about us as Christian people? This person is a full-on committed Christian. What does it say about us that we are so susceptible to this? How have we allowed ourselves to be so infiltrated by such utter rubbish that we no longer understand the truth or the lies? Somebody in this particular documentary made a very telling point. There are only two industries that employ the term users to describe their customers, big tech and drugs. <laughs> what are the effects of this manipulation in an artificial environment? Just one effect of this addiction that we have to information and to smartphones and to apps and to Facebook and all these things 
<clears throat> just one effect of this is isolation. And when somebody feels isolated, they are vulnerable. And so there was a statistic presented that said in the decade 2011, around there to now, starting when social media became available on smartphones, the increase in suicide rates was by 70% in girls 15 to 19. This is the whole peer pressure, internet bullying, Instagram influencers looking like a million bucks <clears throat> because of fake filters and all the rest of it. That increase was 150% in preteen girls compared to the previous decade before smartphones had social media. Anxiety, depression are increasing, isolation is increasing. And the man who was res responsible for the monetization of Facebook said this directly social media is killing people. This is going to take me maybe another five, ten minutes. Please don't go home yet. All of this is happening for the most part without you even being aware of it. Are you addicted yet? Are you addicted yet? I know that there are many, many people who can hear my voice right now in this church that are. The question then becomes, what is your moral compass based upon? What are your decisions forged by? How do you determine true north in your life? In a world that increasingly mocks the idea of absolute truth and constantly presents an anti-Christian worldview to you, what is your absolute truth? Because you see, this addiction to knowledge and information, I've just got to click on this because I've got to know what's behind that headline, that clickbait. You know that term, clickbait? They phrase something in a certain way to get you to click on it, and once you read it, you go, oh, I wasn't really interested in that in the first place. Why did I click on that? They just recorded what you did. That got his attention. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Knowledge, information, is not wisdom and revelation. There's a difference. And we need wisdom and revelation. We need the gift of discerning of spirits and we need to walk in discernment. The gift of discerning of spirits will tell us what's behind it. Discernment will tell us whether something is true or not or whether it's good for us. There is... I got to this point in preparing the message <clears throat> and God took me straight to this scripture because none of this is new. I mean, the data farms are, the computer processing power is, all of that is new. But what's behind it is not. In Ecclesiastes 1, 9 to 10, the man credited with being the most wise person in the Bible, next to Jesus, of course, Solomon says this, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. It's just expressed in a new way, right? Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. Only the vehicle changes. So when we return 
and look at Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal, he knows he is confronting not just the demonic, but a seduction that has slowly, incrementally ruined an entire generation. I was talking to somebody about this before church, and they were, telling, they were describing their grandchildren's behavior to me. That when that person would go over and visit them and they wonder where the grandkids were, they were invariably in the same place, behind a closed door in their bedroom on social media. <clears throat> this is what Elijah confronted because these things come in incrementally. Doesn't matter whether the people founding these apps and this technology had a demonic agenda or not. Most probably they didn't. They just wanted to make a bit of money. But like everything in the material realm, it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And we live in an era where the demonic and the seducing spirits are going hard out because they know what God has promised us and they want to keep us away from what he has for us. So seduced were Elijah's generation that when this brave prophet of the Lord stood alone in confrontation against the demonic, they couldn't even offer a single response to his challenge. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Everyone has an opinion, but for them, as it is for us, this is not about opinions, this is about truth. Who carries the truth? And so the stage was set for an epic confrontation, and that confrontation determined the course of the nature of that nation for the next few years. When Elijah initiated the confrontation, he said to the people, I alone am left of a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And finally the people answered and said, it is well spoken. And just like that generation, this generation is looking for a demonstration of the power of God and nothing less than a demonstration of the power of God will change the course of the culture around us or those addicted by it. This is one of the premier examples of the demonstration of faith birthed in intimacy with God anywhere in the word of God. The whole nation is there and he's one prophet. And God answers by fire and consumes not just the sacrifice, but the altar, the water, the wood, everything gets burned up. And the people begin to cry, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. We talk a lot about the manifestation of the sons of God, that it's time for that manifestation to arise. But the manifestation of the sons of God is not swiping. Manifestation of the sons of God is not checking your Facebook every five minutes. 
The manifestation of the sons of God is not responding to every stupid rumor on Facebook as if it was the truth. The manifestations of the sons of God, the primary manifestation of the sons of God is face down before him so that we can stand before him and receive from him what needs to be released to a broken and dying generation. The manifestation of the sons of God begins with prayer. It begins with worship, digging into the word of God. It's seeking the face of God and then demonstrating the power of God because the sons of God stand in his presence like Elijah did and their actions and their prophecies are empowered by heaven. Don't you want to be empowered by heaven? Don't you want to be responsible for releasing demonstrations of God's power that nobody can deny? Instead of being regarded as those stupid, puny little Christians, look at them trying to fight against the changes we want to make in society. God wants to answer by fire. He is longing to. Do you know what's going to bring it? Our undivided attention. Our undivided attention. Our undivided attention. For those of you who are distracted in a couple of seconds between the times I said that, our undivided attention is what the Lord is looking for. And as I watched this film, I went, oh my goodness. And I could see specific times in my life where I was seduced by this stuff by information, by things that were presented to me in an attractive way. And none of these things were like, it wasn't like I was looking at pornography. It wasn't like I was uh, embracing communism. It wasn't like I was doing any of those things. But sometimes it's the things that appear harmless to us that distract us from God's best. And God's best comes from his presence. See, he wants our undivided attention. If you can't sit through a church service without checking your Twitter feed or your Facebook, you have a problem. If you can't come before God in your private time of prayer and worship without flicking across to your news feed or seeing who said what on Facebook, you have a problem. If you have a problem getting on your face before God, uh, for an hour, if you have a problem doing that, you have a problem. Because we are called to be a holy, separate people marked by the presence of God. And we know that God is all around, but he wants us in his imminent presence. He wants us to experience him all around us, invading every aspect of our lives 24-7. We have the opportunity to invite him into everything that we do. How often do we take it? Or how often are we distracted by these other things? God wants to answer by fire. He's longing to, and he wants to be able to say of us, as he did Elijah, that man, that woman stands before me every day. If you stand before God, you won't bow to man and you won't bow to seducing spirits. You will evict them. 
I need to uh, repeat the prophetic word that the Lord gave me a couple of weeks ago because now we have something specific to attach to what I've been preaching about. In my dream, in this dream encounter, I saw people who had literally been reduced to shadows by the things that had consumed them. And so you could barely make out who they were, but you could make out the things that they were influenced by or enthralled by, captivated by. The things that they were interested in, but you could only see them very faintly as if they were just literally a shadow of who they really were. I don't want to be a shadow. I want to be the real thing. Instead of casting long shadows in sharp relief because of the strength of who they were, this is your identity that's at stake here, they had become reduced to mere shadows themselves. You could barely make out their facial features. It's light that casts shadows. It's light that gives definition to what we see. As some I saw some who had partially turned away from the light, so engrossed were they in the things that they thought were important but actually were just distractions. You ever seen a kid engrossed in their smartphone? Ever seen an adult engrossed in their smartphone? They had become a caricature of their true identity. The frightening part of the dream was that this was entirely of our own making. We have a choice. This was not happening because there was no light available. It was because we were so engrossed by things that don't matter that we preferred the darkness. And I ended that message with Ephesians 5.14. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. I want to put some specifics around the altar call today. Can I have the worship team up? If you're on the worship team and you have a problem in this area, I don't want you on the platform this morning. I want you to bravely stand here and bring these issues to the Lord. 